0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Rabbi Levi Welton. The professional rabbinate is something new in our tradition, as all of the rabbis in ancient and medieval times had occupations, from Rashi, who was a wine merchant, to Maimonides, who was a physician. Levi Welton is the modern exemplar of that, as he serves as a rabbi, and also as a medical professional, and as an officer in the United States Air Force. Levi, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. Thank you. You have a, a lot of Torah knowledge, of course, and so you have a lot of passages to choose from. And the one you chose, interestingly, is Exodus 5.22. So please explain to us what is happening in Exodus 5.22 and why it's so meaningful to you. As a
1: believer, as someone who believes in a higher power
0: in God, the entire Torah
1: is full of lessons. The word Torah doesn't come from the word for stories, or the word for history, or the word for commandment.
0: There's actually no ancient Hebrew word for history. Yeah. It's just historia, which is obviously a, a modern invention from Ben Yehuda. I mean, the word is what, historia? Yeah, exactly. So there's not even an ancient Hebrew or ancient Jewish concept of history.
1: Yes, exactly. You see, the reason why Torah comes from the word, the horot, teach. So it's full of lessons. So every single word that you analyze, you can unpack treasures of lessons.
0: Yeah, so tell us what happens. We're in early Exodus 5.22. What happens over
1: here is Moses is having a conversation with the Lord. And what boggles the mind is Moses says, right. Why have you done evil unto this people, unto the Israelites who are enslaved? And this is a mortal human arrogantly accusing God of evil. And it boggles the mind because a lot of times when I experience evil or my fellow believers experience bad things in their lives, they'll rationalize it. They'll say, oh, must be God has a plan. Must be there's some hidden good. They'll come up with some reason to rationalize the bad occurrence in their life. And I believe that all those reasons are true. But here, look at the words Moses says. Moses, this mortal man, speaks to the immortal creator of life, of the whole game of life, and says, you have done evil. He does not say, Why did you do this action? He does not say, explain to me the reason. He does not even say, I'm upset, let me complain a little bit, like Job might do. He accuses God of evil. He says the word Ota." When you want to say a uh, sin, like a mistake, a transgression, a you know, innocent mistake, of lacking, the great Hasidic Rebbe of Zusha would often say, When I go to heaven, they're not gonna ask me if I was Moses or if I was Queen Esther. They're just gonna say Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? So hate, the word hate is a word for sin, but it really is translated best as lacking. You know, you're not the best person you could be. But ra to say evil, that is the worst word to describe evil, Ra.
0: So Moses is not pulling his punches or softening his words. No. And, And this is fascinating, but just to be clear, the context of here is the Jewish slavery. That's the evil he's talking about. Correct, exactly. So Moses accuses God of evil in the most honest, forthright, and direct way the language knows. And does God get angry with Moses for this insolence? No. So God almost invites it then. God likes the challenge. Yes. And more than 10 commandments, more than the hero is the Lord and God, the
1: Lord is one, more than all the other verses in the Torah, this is my favorite verse. Why is this your favorite verse? Because... Any believer should look at this and say, how is it possible that a human being could be so arrogant unto the Lord and yet it be sanctioned
0: by the Lord? And recorded in our Holy Scripture. Well, God loves a good argument. I mean, God loves arguments from Moses. Moses argues them later, more famously at the Golden Calf, when God threatens to destroy the Jewish people. And Moses says, then blot me out of your Torah. God loves an argument from Abraham. God loves an argument from the daughters of Zalopakad and from the men who want to celebrate Pesach, despite the fact they were impure. Other times too, but God loves a good argument. God loves to be challenged. The idea that God is unchanging and perfect in the sense that he hasn't changed is not the God of the Torah.
1: But you know, the Talmud has a very interesting lesson. It says, the Torah will never embarrass a creature, even animals in the Torah. Always just speak respectfully. So here the Torah records the complaint of Moses verbatim. You know, if Moses was being arrogant and it was something which we're not supposed to do, then it wouldn't have recorded you know, the full sentence
0: perhaps. But how is that the case? Because there are lots of instances in the Torah where we're we're able to say so-and-so, at least argue, so-and-so made a mistake. He should regret having said that. She should regret having done that. And wouldn't that qualify as potentially embarrassing the Torah figure? A hundred
1: percent. And therefore, every single one of those quote-unquote mistakes, there's some powerful lesson that God desperately wants us to take
0: away. So what's the lesson that God desperately wants us to take away from 522 when Moses, in the most insolent, except of course it's not insolent, God loves it, but in the most supposedly insolent or seemingly insolent way possible, accuses God of doing evil. I mean, God is supposed to be the definition of good, and here Moses accuses him of doing evil, and God does not even argue back, let alone get him in trouble.
1: Yeah, so I was talking to... One of my Torah students was an army veteran. And he said, Hey, you know, but he mentioned what you mentioned, the golden calf. And by the golden calf, you see in the language of the Torah that God kind of wanted. And like you said, he invited Moses to stick up for his people. And Rashi, the very famous commentator that you referenced at the beginning of the podcast, quotes from different sources that in the words itself, you see Hashem kind of checked in with Moses to see what Moses would do. And Moses took that cue to say, I will stand up for my people like I stood up for that lost lamb many, many years ago.
0: Well, because God in the golden calf tells Moses, now go away. Now, when he's saying go away, he's basically saying don't go away. Exactly. But here, there's none of that. Here, look at the context. Here,
1: Moses, you know, went to Pharaoh. They're not having a good day. It says 22. And Moses returned to God and said, God, why have you done evil unto this people? For some reason, Hashem wants us to hear this.
0: Why do you think Hashem wants us to hear it now? So I think this is a
1: profound lesson in life, especially now we have pandemics, both a physical disease and social disease. Look what's happening over here. A lot of times in my personal life, I've come across corruption. It doesn't matter if I'm dealing with rich people or poor people. And I have a lot of reasons to complain, kind of like Job later on, say, oh, God, why have you done this to me? Why have you done evil to me? It's not fair. Are you really there? Do you really care? Here, the way that my father taught me in the name of his teacher, the Baba Terebi, Moses is talking about evil that's done to the other. It's
0: not talking about how come this was done to me, evil that was done to the other. That's very interesting because, yeah, Moses is, of course, never enslaved. In fact, he grows up in the Pharaoh's palace. He's the most privileged Jew in the world. No one's even close. Right. Exactly.
1: So now I flip the script to you and I say, now that you see that Moses over here is talking about others, not himself, how does this connect with that later on in Numbers, the Torah professes that Moses is the most humble upon the face of the earth? One of the most famous verses in the Torah about Moses.
0: Right. And one of the only times when the author of the Torah kind of steps out to give an opinion. Exactly. So how is this arrogant moment right
1: here in Exodus 22, the most arrogant moment that I could think of a human being doing, accusing the creator of the game, right? If God makes the game, he can do whatever he wants. How is this arrogant moment an expression of the most humility?
0: Well, because I think what Moses is teaching us is what humility is. You know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. And that's what Moses is doing here. So what Moses is saying is we're all, including you, God, we all live under our principles and we can all of our principles, including perhaps, especially you, God, because you have the most principles and have the highest expectation. So being humble is saying, I may have gifts. Moses may be saying, I may have great gifts, but I'm still always below my principles. And in the context of when Moses is called the most humble man on earth, he was just praying for Miriam, who had just insulted him. So in other words, he said, my principle in this case is the integrity of my family. The fact that she said something to me, I don't even, that's not relevant to this conversation. I'm still praying for her. So God recognized, or the author of the Torah recognized, that Moses was sublimating himself to his principles. And that's what biblical humility is. I love that.
1: And that's why I'm going to respectfully disagree with C.S. Lewis.
0: Oh, you are? Okay.
1: Yes. And say that it's not thinking about yourself less. It's bittu, especially in the Hasidic philosophy and the Hasidic culture. Bittu, which means humility, to nullify yourself, anavam, is really best translated as being open.
0: So C.S. Lewis is talking about nullifying the way we would understand. It's, it's just thinking about yourself less. And so open meaning what? Meaning it's not even about
1: you. Who cares if you're more or less? Just stop thinking about yourself. Isn't that what C.S. Lewis is saying? Thinking about yourself less? I think so, but it's all couched in the terms of yourself. Whereas Anava is one time a person came to the Alter Rebbe and he had financial issues.
0: Who was the Alter Rebbe?
1: The Alter Rebbe was, uh, he lived a few hundred years ago. He was a Hasidic Rebbe. He was the first Chabad Rebbe.
0: So he was the Rebbe's? Father's ancestor.
1: Yes, Rebbe's father and father in law's ancestor. Right, father in law's ancestor. And he wrote the seminal uh, Hasidic, Kabbalistic text called the Tanya, which is very popular these days. But the person answered the, Re- the Alter Rebbe and said, Have financial troubles, what should I do? And the Rebbe said, Stop thinking about what you need and think what you're needed for. And this is anava. Like Moses is not even thinking about, Moses is being open. It's not about being like, I'm thinking about myself less, which could lead you to being
0: more of a meek, you know, sweet personality. But Moses makes that distinction. Moses, I think, is in the C.S. Lewis. He is thinking about himself less, but he knows he has great gifts. He knows his gifts are so great that he can confidently argue with God. Like who among us thinks so highly of ourselves? That it's like, I am so confident that I'm right, but I'm going to argue with God. And in fact, as you point out, I'm going to call him evil. Very few of us would have that confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. But Moses is able to say, He's very confident. He's very aware of his great gifts, but always sublimates himself to his principles and thinks very little, if ever, about himself.
1: Yes. I love the term sublimate himself to his principles. He's bittu. He's open to whatever the moment needs from him. If the moment needs a rebel to face a tyrant, he's going to walk into Pharaoh's court. If the moment needs... A sweet, sensitive person to chase after the lost lamb, he's going to chase after the lost lamb. Whatever God presents to him in that moment, Moses is open to doing what the moment requires.
0: And, and in order for him to do that well, he needs confidence. I mean, I actually put this in, in my forthcoming book about the Haggadah, where we have the rabbi say, I am like a 70-year-old man. Now he's bragging. I mean, he's not saying he's 70-year-old in physical sense, but God, he was like 17 years old at the time. He was a millennial. He was either 16 or 17. Yeah. And he's saying, I am like a 7 year old man in the capacity of wisdom. So the question is, why is the Haggadah recording for all of eternity in only praise a rabbi bragging? This is the answer that I, I wrote in the book. He's acknowledging this great gift of knowledge and wisdom at a ridiculously young age. But then it's a question of what does he do with that knowledge and wisdom? In order to do something with it, you have to acknowledge you have it. You know, The Rebbe Menachem Shearson, what's the Hebrew... Uh, for every Jew is a guarantor for every other Jew? The famous Talmudic expression?
1: Yeah. Call your soul a, a raven
0: Zeb, That's from the Talmud? Yes. Yeah. And the Rabbi's interpretation was he was a great rationalist and always knew how the Torah relates to our lives. And what he said was, in order to be a guarantor for something, you have to be richer than the person for whom you're guaranteeing. And it makes so much sense. Like if a parent guarantees an apartment rental for a child that presumes that the parent is wealthier than the child or else why would the landlord rely upon the guarantee of the parent? What the Rebbe is saying is, if we take this seriously, and we have to take everything in the Jewish text seriously, if you're a guarantor for somebody else, you must be richer than everybody else in something. So go identify what that thing is. And it's not humility to say there's nothing because you can't fulfill that commandment if you say there's nothing.
1: Yeah. Rav Pinchot of Kar, one of the great ascetic masters, used to say that Every single person is richer than their fellow in one trait.
0: Did he come before or after the Rebbe? Because it's the same thing. Before. So the Rebbe must have been learning from him. You know, in
1: a way, we're all learning from the same truth in a capital T, right?
0: That's right. Well, yes, and from each other. And I think, you know, one of the great things about Judaism is it's one long, ongoing conversation.
1: Yes, I love that. That's a great way of putting it.
0: So the Rebbe was in conversation with, what's that guy's name?
1: A Rebbe, Pinchot
0: Yeah, the Rebbe was in conversation with him who may have been in conversation with somebody else, you know, whose idea wasn't originally. It's the truth. It doesn't really matter. Talk about humility. I'm sure the Rebbe would say it's not about a copyright.
1: They say about truth, the word in Hebrew for truth is emet, aleph, mem, tough. And what's interesting about that word is the first letter of the word is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The middle letter of the word is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the last letter of the word is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So truth is something which is consistent no matter what time or experience you're in.
0: In other words, it doesn't matter where you are. The truth is constant. It's always there. It's independent of everything else. Correct. Amen.
1: Amen. You see, in the Sephardic community, a lot of times, you know, we're used, I'm used to as an Ashkenazi Jew saying, amen, amen, when I hear something I really like. No, amen to that. Amen, sister. That type of thing. What does amen actually mean? Amen is an ancient Aramaic for "we agree" or "I agree." Whereas, Emmet, a lot of people in the Sufi community, if they hear something they really like, they'll say amen. Truth.
0: Interesting. And in, in the Christian tradition, um, very often in church, people will say truth. Oh yes. So in a Sephardic synagogue, you're not going to hear amen, you're going to hear emet?
1: You will hear amen when it comes to the ritual prayers. But a lot of times in some of the prayers, or even some of just the personal conversations, someone says something and they'll respond with emet. I wanted to bring out over here that when Moses says, Why be them evil to this people? This eternal truth is relevant today more than ever before. How's that? I mean, I look around at what's going on in today's society and I feel whether it's technology or whatever the cause is, even easier to rip ourselves away from each other and look at the other person as not really being American. And I hear the words being casually and carelessly bandied about about a civil war in this country. And I wonder, what if we all said this statement of Moses, why have you done evil to the other instead of why have you done evil to me?
0: Right. And so in this case, what you're saying is that the Torah is teaching us Because we later learn, as you just pointed out, we later learn, but it's building. I mean, he's later declared, not really learned, he's later declared to be the most humble man of all times because like everything before then is kind of why he gets that designation. And so true humility is constantly thinking about how are others being harmed. And in order to get to that, you have to first ask what do others experience, what do they feel? How might they be interpreting this situation differently than me? And that's going to be the most important thing of my reality is what Moses is telling us how to interpret events. Very interesting. So how does God respond? I mean, basically, how does the story continue after this challenge from Moses?
1: Well, to be honest, the continuation of the story didn't really matter so much to me. It was this phrase when Moses says, "Why have you done, evil. And I personally, when I was younger, I struggled with my belief because of the evil that I saw being done to myself and to others. And,
0: you struggled with your faith?
1: Uh, yes, sir. And it was, you know, God, if you're, so, if you're so great, why can't you make a world where everything you want can be achieved without pain?
0: Well, that is the existential question. Now, you know, in Auschwitz, Eda Wiesel told the story of they put God on trial. And God was found, I believe he was found definitely not innocent and guilty, but with some kind of context around it. I think it was something like guilty and You owe us better than what you're giving us. But it was definitely guilty. Now, it was guilty with an opinion, like every other legal designation. So it was guilty with an opinion. I go back to what Milton Steinberg said when he wrestled with the same question that you wrestled with. And he said, the believer has to struggle with the question of why bad things happen to good people. The atheist has to struggle with everything else. I mean, this is the very difficult question for the believer. And let's just be honest. It's a very difficult question for the believer. And 522 may help us, but it's still a challenge. That's why my favorite bumper sticker is, thank God I'm an atheist. Right. But this is the great challenge to the believer. As Milton Steinberg said, the atheist has to explain everything else. Oh, that's beautifully said. Even before
1: the Holocaust, this is a theme. There was a very holy Hasidic Rebbe named the Reblevi Yitzhak of Barditchev. Oh, uh, one of the greats, yes. One of the greats. And one time in the High holiday season, he got up and proclaimed, God, it says in the Jewish law that you can't take God's name in vain. And all your people are proclaiming, blessed are you, God, who forgives the sinner. So you must forgive us. You have to forgive us. Otherwise, your name will be taken in vain, going against your own word and own law. And you see in a way that this type of challenging God to protect the people is a theme, starting from Exodus 22 all the way down to the Breditrafer.
0: The Breditrafer was also a great defender of the Jewish people. I believe it was him. I'm pretty sure it was him who saw a young man smoking a cigarette on Shabbat and he goes up to the young man and he says, do you know it's Shabbat? The young man said, absolutely. And he said, do you know you're smoking a cigarette? The young man said, obviously. And he said, do you know it's forbidden to smoke cigarettes on Shabbat? And the young man said, yes. Then he says, God, what a wonderful people you've made. These people can't even lie. (laughs) Yeah. Always finding the positive, always making the defense. And that's one of the things that he taught us.
1: This is a human because we're all humanity, we all share this soul inside of us that comes from our collective father in heaven. That's what's interesting. I heard from one of my teachers that we don't call God our judge on the high holiday season. We call God our king, our father. Why do we call God our king? Because a king is able to know the law and then decide to supersede the law out of love.
0: And a father can
1: Right. Well, a father can kind of do the same thing. In other words, a judge... It has to be fair. It doesn't matter if it's nice or loving or compassion. There's no room for compassion and judgment. Judgment is strict righteousness. So we don't call God our judge, even though it's a day of judgment, because we're implying that this is a day when, you're right, I may deserve something, but God, you know, a monarch, the way it used to be, and our parent can say, you deserve this, but I'm going to do something with more mercy and compassion.
0: Hence, we have on Yom Kippur, the Torah. Yes. Yeah, about Jonah. One of the many things that incredible story, which is the length of the newspaper column is about, is exactly that subject, about truth, mercy, repentance on Yom Kippur. And I want to point out
1: something my mother always taught me. Remember, Jonah the prophet, a Jewish prophet, that whole story is not about Jonah and Jews. It's about Jonah and his fellow human beings. The city that he went to was not a Jewish city.
0: And the sailors weren't Jews.
1: Correct. So a lot of times Jonah thought, well, maybe I'm a Jewish prophet. I'm supposed to be a light unto my people. And yet that whole story is about Jonah saying, hey, God wants me to be here, not necessarily where I think I have
0: to be. Right. We'll have to discuss Jonah another time because I think Jonah is unfairly treated in the tradition in the sense that, yes, he's the reluctant prophet who does everything he can to refuse his mission, including suicide attempts. But we know from the book of Nahum, which immediately follows Jonah, that the repentance of the Ninevites, if it happened at all, was very short-lived. And they pretty much immediately resumed their evil ways so much so that God in the next generation said, all right, destroy them." And Jonah, in that case, was right by the terms that God said one generation later. Like all great stories, it's so complicated.
1: Well, I have two things to say about that since you brought it up, Mark. One, there was one time, we just mentioned the author Rebbe before, one time they used to have what's called a forbringon. And a forbringon is like a moment of authentic communication. You sit around a table, usually you sing some songs, ancient melodies, you... Have something to eat to quiet your the animal within you, so that the God within you could really connect with the God and the other person. And there was a bunch of you know scholars and people really working on self improvement sitting around the table. And then there was one guy who just came for the booze. And eventually, these Hasidim, these students of the Alter Rebbe, complained to their teacher and said, "Look, we're all here for a purpose. He's just here for fun to have the booze." And the author Rebbe told them, "If you knew the Nachas Ruach." the happiness that God has that this human being is not, you know, away somewhere else doing worse things. And he's sitting at this table, not doing those worse things. You would never say that. So even for a moment, even for like a uh, five minutes sitting around there, it's considered valuable.
0: Yes. But I think there's a difference. I don't think that's an analogy to the Jonah story, because like, what could that guy have possibly been doing? That would have been so bad. The Ninevites, they're evil. I mean, they would slay people and use the skin as wallpaper. They would cut off both of someone's legs and then the left arm so they could shake the right arm of the guy as he was dying. They beheaded people and used the heads as crowns. I mean, their evil was of biblical proportions is one way to say. They were Nazis. Yeah, exactly. They were the most evil in everything they did, kingdom of their day, not even just the 8th century BC, but just pure evil. So Jonah's point, I think, was we can't let them continue. And talk about truth. Jonah, the son of Amitai. Jonah was the son of truth.
1: That's a great point. I didn't think about that. I will bring up Victor Frankl's book, which is one of the top 10 books in the Library of Congress in our country. The greatest book of the 20th century. And Victor Frankl points out how he's witnessed a rabbi ripping bread out of a child's hand in the camps and witnessed a Nazi giving coffee to a boy in a death march so the boy wouldn't be shot when he fell down. And he said the famous line, there's only, you probably know it better than me, there's only two types of men in the world the decent man and the indecent man. So, and then I want to couch that. One of the most fascinating parts of the Bible that a a lot of my fellow believers really find very intriguing and inspiring is the Rashi's contrasting of the flood generation of the flood and their evil and the generation of the tower of Babel and their evil. And basically Rashi says, it's not fair. They both were evil generations like the city of Ninveh, doing evil things. And yet the flood, they get wiped out. And the Tower of babel they just get dispersed, but they still remain and survive. That's not fair. If they're evil, God should wipe them both out equally. So Rashi brings down a teaching, which is one of the most beautiful teachings in the Torah, in my opinion. And Rashi says, when a child, when a parent sees children fighting with each other, it breaks the parent's heart. But when a parent sees the children helping each other, even if they're kind of doing something against the parent's wishes, the parent has mercy. And in the Tower of Babel, they were building a tower to slay God in heaven. That's literally what they were doing. In the generation of the flood, if you look at the commentary, they were being cruel to each other. They didn't care about God. They just cared about corrupting each other and being cruel to each other. Whereas in the Tower of Babel, they were like literally, let us slay God, kind of Nietzsche style. And God said, but look, they're doing it in such love in such unity. They were like, you look at the words, the ancient words, they're doing it with one language. They were together. They were united.
0: Well, when it says they were of one language, that's the ancient way of saying they were thinking the same way, which is very scary to God because God loves true diversity.
1: You're saying the opposite, like it kind of like a group think, the herd mentality.
0: Yeah. You know, of one language is that they were thinking the same way. And that's totalitarianism. I think that's what God was responding to. But you know, another example, going back to what you were saying about humility, of God demonstrating his humility is, is similar to what you're saying about the Tower of Babel, which is in the Sota story, when God's willing to destroy his name in order to save a marriage. This is divine humility. In the Sota story, there's this marriage that's gone awry. It's an incredible story. We're not going to go into all the details now, but it's a, it's a marriage that's gone awry, and God intervenes to save the marriage by saying, you can destroy my name. Literally, take a piece of paper, put my name on it, and put it in water, which will destroy it. And we know from everything else in the Bible that the name of God is sacred. You don't destroy God's name, except God says, destroy my name in order to save a marriage, which is what's God saying, you can destroy me, you can nullify me, if it'll serve my principle, which is the preservation of this marriage. And that's divine humility.
1: Yeah, I love that. And that's why I hear anyone who's a social activist or likes and supports activism this Exodus 5.22 is a great place to meditate upon because you could say, if it looks evil to me, even if perhaps in heaven, it's meant to be, it's a destiny, I am obligated to stand up and call out and speak my truth, even to the creator of the game itself and say, why have you done evil to this people? And look, what Moses, what's the end of the story Did Moses become an atheist? And Moses give up his faith, then Moses kind of decide, "Forget it, I'm going to be like one of those movie characters who just you know drowns my sorrows and pain and some you know whatever. No, Moses then decides to work 10 times harder to liberate the people, 10 times harder to be a servant of God. And Moses is literally called your servant Moses." Like he works 10 times harder to be open, to have that anava to what is needed, to the Avodah, to the service he needs.
0: So an approachable God is the God with whom Moses can build a stronger relationship.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's beautiful, an approachable God.
0: Well, Levy, thank you, as always, for such a fascinating conversation coming off of Exodus 5.22. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He tells the story, he said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So me. in all of your years as a rabbi, and I'm thinking perhaps particularly with regards to your service in the United States Air Force. By the way, I saw you in an Air Force recruitment video. So with regards to your service in the United States Air Force, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Great question. I would say one, we're more alike.
1: You know what? I was going to say, We're well, more alike than we like to say we are.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't even agree with that because, I, you know, going back to the Ninevites, I don't think like a lot of the people that we know are like the Ninevites at all.
1: Yeah. Two things, you know, I want to say I recently had the pleasure of having a conversation with Major General Shaikh who is the Chief of Chaplains of the United States Air Force. And I asked him what the secret to his success was. And he told me, never focus on the position or the title. Focus on the airmen and the people you serve and the work you do. And when I think of humble people like Moses, whether it's the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the legendary Rabbi Adin Steinzel, who I consider both of them to be, to have this humility, this, this openness to their work, to their service that they brought to people. I think that's one thing. People crave service. We thank our military for their service and, being a person of service, not a servant, but a person of service opens you up to changing their life. A lot of times I see it in my life, I've had the pleasure of having mentors like yourself who have in crucial moments been able to say, here, don't think about necessarily what you want out of this. Think about what you could give to this or, or pick the job that you can be more of service. And it's led me to better places, more successful places, selfishly because of that. And I think that's the way that our soul DNA is built. You know, we're not satisfied with being an animal. We can have all our pleasures, all our physical needs met. We're not going to be satisfied because we have inside us something which no other creature on the planet has. And that's a soul. And we all share that. And so the human condition is constantly striving for more innovation, you know, inventions.
0: Well, that's right. You know, Shimon Perez was, um, and he was the great champion of Jewish innovation and Jewish capitalism and and the innovative spirit. And yet he was asked, what is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity? And he said, dissatisfaction. Hmm,
1: I never knew that, but I love that.
0: I think it's a great Jewish truth, is that we're never satisfied. And actually that's totally borne out in Deuteronomy. When Moses says you will become satisfied and you expect good things, but no, all these bad things happen subsequently.
1: Right. (laughs) I love that. That's great. And especially now you have the, we're in the 10 days of tshuva, the high holiday penitential season. Tshuva doesn't necessarily mean you repent and say, oh, I did something bad. Now I'm sorry. Shuva literally translates as to turn, to return to who you are. So you can just say you really are this person that is a creator to be like the creator with a capital C and return to who you really are. That's what Shuva is in these days, to be dissatisfied with your spiritual standing and say, oh, I, I want to create more. I want to be a service person, service more. And that's what I see in the Air Force. You know, I see people that have so many different opinions So many different political, cultural opinions. Do people talk politics in the service? Uh, They do, but it's very sensitive because you know your commander in chief is the president and you're not allowed to use your position in the military to support a particular party. So you gotta be careful how you do that. But the point is what I see is that the uniform unites the people regardless of their diversity because they're all a person of service. And when they recognize that the other person also is a person of service, that creates this interesting safe space container for conversations, which sometimes I don't see out in the larger public.
0: So are you saying that in the service, I mean, just like outside of the service, in civilian life, in the Air Force, even though there are sensitivities talking politics, people do anyway. And there's, you could have someone on the right and someone on the left. And outside the service, they might hate each other or if not that, just choose not to engage with each other. Whereas in the service, they can have these conversations and it's totally okay in every respect with regards to their relationship because they both know that their opinions are less important than the flag they salute and the uniform they wear. Yeah, I think
1: so. You know, humans are humans everywhere. So you could have it inside or outside, but the fact that they're both wearing that uniform and, and saluting that flag gives that extra type of unity for that space to, to have those type of conversations in ways that I wish I saw more of in the civilian world.
0: You, know, you see the same thing in Israel where, you know, you talk with soldiers and reservists because in reservists, they're reservists till they're in their 40s. So, of course, they're talking politics. You see people on the right and on the left, but they're able to do incredible things together in and outside of the military because of their shared commitment to the blue and white.
1: Yeah. And then the second thing I've probably seen in my, my service as in the Air Force about humanity is how much pain people hide.
0: Well, that's exactly what this priest was saying in the Antrimo example. Everyone is much less happy than they seem. So you're saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, I see that too. And especially as a chaplain, people come to you in confidence. The struggles and the pain behind the scenes. And nowadays, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, it's all like the fun, cool stuff. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of sadness and pain and suffering.
0: About what? About anything and everything or something more specific?
1: It could be about anything or everything. But, you know, you stop being surprised when someone says to you what they're struggling
0: with. In the beginning, I was like shocked. You are struggling with that? Like, how is that possible? Because when you say you, that person was kind of known as being like a tough guy and authority figure as invincible.
1: Yeah, whoever they are. It's like, you're struggling with that demon. You're struggling with that darkness. Like, how is that even possible? Like Moses is saying, why have you done evil unto this people? When you hear each other struggling with other things, people need people.
0: Well, what does the Talmud say? A prisoner cannot free himself from prison?
1: Exactly. Like if more people confessed like they did to that priest, to each other.
0: It's it's a beautiful tradition the Catholics have of confession. Putting aside any theological disagreements that non-Catholics like us Jews will have with it, of course we do. It's a beautiful tradition that they have a structural way to unburden yourself every week.
1: And I would say being able to have that conversation with the other, you know, it's interesting because once again, I'm quoting the author Eddie a lot today. I don't know why this is happening. He's well worth it. The altar Rebbe used to talk about and saying, inside of us, we have two souls, an animal and a godly soul. And the animal soul is just instinctual. It's not good or bad. It's just instinctual. And most animals are just, care about self-preservation, selfishness. Whereas the godly soul is open to something bigger, something higher. So therefore, if you're able to connect with another person, your two godly souls will work together. Whereas your two animal souls refuse to work together. So if you work with the other person, You could team up against an animal soul and really achieve self-perfection and self-development and really achieve godly miracles in the world because two godly souls versus one animal soul, which is basically if you could confess to your friend or to your spouse or to whoever it is that you trust and create that place where you could talk about the things that are holding you down and the darkness and the animal parts of yourself, you could become open to your greatness.
0: Absolutely. Now, just the concluding question I'll ask is about your experience in the Air Force with what you just mentioned. Now, I presume that just given my presumption of how many Jews there are in the Air Force and that you're receiving all of these people coming to you, a lot of the people coming to you are Gentiles.
1: I don't use the word Gentile. I use the word in the Torah. The word that the Torah uses is goy, And goy means a nation. So Hashem says you are a family amongst other families. So I, I always try to use the term which I consider with all due respect to be a better term of that translation, because I don't know what Gentile even means.
0: I'm just using it perhaps incorrectly just to mean non-Jew. Right.
1: So I wouldn't use that because God never says non-Jew. God says you are a holy Goy, a Goy Kadosh amongst other Goyi, amongst other nations. And even on the holiday of Sukkot in the ancient temple, the high priest of the Jews would offer sacrifices for the 70 nations of the world. Not just one sacrifice for all the nations, but 70 for each individual culture in a way. Wow,
0: amazing. I didn't know that.
1: So you see how our people would pray for the individuality of the other nations. So you're right. Most of the people who are coming to see me
0: are from other cultures and other backgrounds. I'll tell you how I interpret Tell me this is wrong. It's Lots of people talk about rising anti-Semitism. I don't know if antisemitism is rising or decreasing. I don't know. I think from a historical perspective, it's probably decreasing, but whatever. The point is, it seems amazing in the best of ways that people from all faiths go to an Orthodox rabbi to unburden themselves. And it's not even an issue. You didn't even bring it up. as anything interesting? And I wonder if that was the case in the Air Force 50 years ago.
1: Well, the Air Force has changed in 50 years. That's for
0: sure. Have you heard from any people who are more senior? Not that anyone was serving with, now is there 50? Well, I don't know. I mean, 50 years ago were non-Jews, people from other nations, going to Orthodox rabbis because you were a religious figure they respected from a religion they presumably respected so much that they could unburden themselves to you.
1: Well, I would say like this, I don't know, and yes, I'll tell you why. I can't point to a particular person, but they're not coming to me because I'm an Orthodox rabbi. They're coming to me because I'm wearing the hat of United States Air Force chaplain.
0: They don't care that you're an Orthodox rabbi?
1: They might, but when I'm there for them, I'm not there as a rabbi. But in order to become
0: a chaplain, you have to be a clergyman, right?
1: Correct. But this is where it gets interesting because people come to me as a chaplain and I, a lot of times I'm not even talking about anything to do with religion, but what makes a chaplain unique, different than some of the other kind of mental health services in the air force is we have hundred percent confidentiality. So no matter what they tell me, I'm not allowed to share that with anyone without their permission.
0: Do they ask you about what the Jewish perspective on this or that is, or that doesn't come up? It's up to
1: them. They steer the conversation. But do they ever
0: steer, is that common for it to be steered that way or not so common?
1: I would say not common, but it has happened to me. People have asked me, here's what I'm dealing with. And I'll share them something, I'll share with them an idea. And they'll say, well, well, what is your faith? Think about that. But most of the times, I'm just trying to be there for them. Another interesting thought of one of the great Musa teachers. You ever heard of Yisrael Salantar? Yeah, of course. Yisrael Salantar, the sentence he said was, you should feed the poor as if you're an atheist. So don't think that, oh, God's going to help you. No stretch out your hand and give from your wallet.
0: Yeah, I believe that was in the context. Was it him? I believe he was, he was asked. He said, everyone has so much to offer. And then someone said, well, what, what about an atheist? He said, and that's where I think that came from. You should feed the poor like you're an atheist. Because when, when they do something, you know they're doing it from the goodness of their own heart because they don't even believe there's a higher power looking out for them.
1: Right. Or they do believe, but it's really hidden. <laughs> Here too, airmen will come to a chaplain because the chaplain's a sacred space. And it's completely confidential. And sometimes they'll come from religious questions, sometimes they not. But it's the chaplain's role, which is a very important role in the military, is the spiritual resiliency that goes into creating a warrior. And whether it's a, a warrior of light too, you know, you call people, say I'm a social justice warrior. That's a term out there. The spiritual resiliency, coming from the faith tradition very often, like this whole podcast, right, has relevance to all humanity. Because People could take the spiritual lessons that you're sharing on your podcast and make themselves more resilient in the face of all the craziness.
0: That's to gift to the Torah. That's to the Torah. The Torah is not like what the Jews should do. It's a gift to humanity. Right. And that's why Maimonides,
1: a very famous Sephardic, uh, Halakhic authority, says that on Mount Sinai, God gave the Torah to Moses and said, share the Noahide code with all humanity. Be that light to the nations that Isaiah was prophesizing about.
0: Isaiah 66, yeah. Well, Levi, thank you, as always, for such a fascinating conversation and for showing us and teaching us so many things. Um, Perhaps the most fundamental is how one biblical passage can yield so much wisdom. Mark, it was an honor. Thank you, and Shana Tova. Happy New Year.
1: Shana Tova. May you be blessed with an amazing, sweet, and prosperous year.
0: Thank you.